A few years ago, um, my wife and I had an opportunity to visit uh, a place where I spent some of my childhood, that is 311 Charvet Avenue in Mansfield, Ohio, and uh, it, was, it was fun to introduce my wife to a place that I have many precious memories, and uh, it, it's interesting, things I hadn't thought about in years just started flooding back in. I was like, hey, Vange, this is where we built our tree fort, and oh, that's the roof my brother fell off of. And this is where we rode our bikes and all these memories. Things that I will always cherish. But let me pose a question for you. If I were to say, you know, life as a seminary student, uh, life right now is difficult, it's different than what it was, I just want to go back to 311 Charvet Avenue. You might think, well, that's weird. Um, you can't just move into someone's house. That's not our house anymore. You might think that's irresponsible. Matt, you are a, you're a dad. You're a husband. You're a seminary student. You can't just abandon all that just to return to some childhood dream. You might think that's irrational. You're not thinking correctly about the past. Now, I was a child then, so I was unaware of some of the things that were going on in my family's life, but there is a reason why we only spent two years in Mansfield, Ohio. Those were difficult days for our family. And just to return to the past for the sake of living in the good old days, it's not thinking correctly about the past. Anytime we idealize a particular time in, in our lives, whether that's the past, the present, or the future, we are tempted to fall into an idolatry of a particular time. We're asking something of this life, again, whether past, present, or future, to give us something that only Jesus can give us in eternity. So as we look at past things, there are temptations. There are temptations to worship the past and therefore forget that the God of the past is the same God of now. It's also tempting to look back at the past and be discouraged that it's not like what it was. Sometimes we are caught in a, in a particular time where it's hard in the present, it's discouraging, and we look back and say, man, I wish it was that way again. It's one of the reasons why the words of uh, a hymn that it's entitled, Oh God, Our Help in Ages Past, and it continues to go on our hope for years to come. Our shelter in the stormy blast and our eternal home. And I love that last phrase because eternity gives perspective in the present moment. 
And it is a message that Haggai brings to the people of Israel. And it's a message that I believe we need to um, hear again today as believers in Jesus Christ. And Aaron, uh, the, the phone went down, so if, it, if you could help me with that. So I would invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Haggai, and there is no shame in looking in the table of contents. It's a small book. The Bible is a big book. Just go to the table of contents if you need to. If you're using the Bibles in the chairs, it's on page 791. So I want to ask you the question, do you feel discouraged in the present moment? Is there something that you feel as the people of Israel did in this day, of looking at a task they have been given as insignificant, small, or maybe even something that would be considered a failure, you are not alone in discouragement. And may God's word, as we come to it, encourage your heart to live by faith. Let me give you some... uh, Historical context where, with where we're at. Um, king Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, took over Israel and led Israelite captives to Babylon. And these are known as exiles. They did it, uh, king Nebuchadnezzar did this in a couple of different waves. He did it in a first wave. Ezekiel was a part of that. Uh, he did it in a second wave that Daniel was a part of. And uh, at that point... King Nebuchadnezzar destroyed, thank you, uh, he destroyed uh, Jerusalem, the temple, and it was, it was a, uh, a horrible thing to witness. And we get that recorded in Jeremiah. Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet. He is the prophet that was left to see his city, nation, come to ruin. But God was not done with his people. Amen to that. Kingdoms rise, kingdoms fall. The king of Babylon rose. The king of Babylon and its nation, his nation fell. The Persian Empire arose. And King Cyrus sends waves of return exiles back to Jerusalem. And uh, this would have happened at 538 BC, 48 years later, so almost a lifetime later, but we'll see that people were alive to see the temple destroyed, those, some of those people were able to return 48 years later. Now, there, there are historical books that record these events, and the book of Ezra is a historical book that records the happenings of this first return of uh, the people of Israel back to Jerusalem. And Ezra describes the laying of the foundation of the temple, which was destroyed. And there was much celebration at the laying of the temple's foundation, but there was also much weeping. Because people who had witnessed the glory of Solomon's temple are witnessing the rebuilding and they're realizing what they're seeing is not like what it was. And there's weeping and wailing along with the celebration and 
the book of Ezra records that it was so loud, you couldn't distinguish between the two. So they, they start this work of rebuilding the temple, but it's abandoned. It's abandoned for a number of reasons. They had external threats from Israel's enemies that said, we don't want this to happen, and we're going to make sure that it doesn't. We don't like this people. They also had focus on internal things that also caused them to stop the rebuilding of the temple. And so for 18 years, it just sat dormant. So we have a prophetic book, the book of Haggai, that God sends a number of messages, three messages to his people in this moment to stir them up. And we get this message. Now, the first chapter is God calling his people to say, hey, stop focusing on yourself and your worldly ambitions and focus on rebuilding my temple. Get refocused. And so the people answer that call. They repent, and they start working on the temple again. And you would like to think that, and they lived happily ever after. But there's still another chapter. And that's the chapter we're going to jump into today. And I'm so encouraged, and I hope you're encouraged too, that when you make steps of growth and repentance in your Christian walk, that it's not, it's not the end. And be encouraged that God is with you in the steps of difficulty, even when the steps are taken with uh, discouragement, that God is not done. I love the story of um, the, the Lord of the Rings trilogies. And the middle uh, story, the two towers, there's an epic battle called the Battle of Helm's Deep. And it's, it's very lengthy, it's very violent, it's, it's fought with much difficulty. And the good wins. But there's this quote at the very end of the movie, it's, it's by, from Gandalf. And Gandalf says, the battle of Helm's Deep is over. The battle for Middle-earth is about to begin. And that's what I kind of see here, like the battle for calling God's people to rebuild. They've, they've obeyed the command, but the battle is not over yet. And it's the same thing with us. Living by faith is a continual battle fought with faith in the power of Jesus Christ don't be confused that the battle is over once steps of obedience are taken. Don't lose heart when discouragement comes. God is still faithful in giving you all you need to live for by faith and obedience to him. So let's read uh, Haggai chapter 2. We're going to read through verses 1 through 8. And this is a month later from his first message. So the people have obeyed the command to rebuild the temple. They're starting it. A month later goes by, and it says, In the seventh month, on the 21st of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, saying, Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? In comparison with it, is, it, is this not in your eyes as nothing? Yet now, 
Be strong, Zerubbabel, says the Lord, and be strong, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and be strong, all you people of the land, says the Lord, and work, for I am with you, says the Lord of hosts, according to the word that I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remains among you. Do not fear, for thus says the Lord of hosts, once more, it is a little while, I will shake heaven and earth and the sea and dry land, and I will shake all nations, and they shall come to the desire of all nations, and I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts, and in this place I will give peace, says the Lord of hosts. So Haggai's point in bringing this message of encouragement to the people of Israel as they obey the command of the Lord to rebuild the temple is our main point for today, and that is discouraged people need God's perspective. And let us remind ourselves that God's perspective is so much better. He has been an always will be the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. And so he has the whole picture. And it is better than ours. Our perspective is so small and finite and limited. God's is better. And so I would invite you to hear a little bit about God's perspective to strengthen your heart. The first one, the first point that we need to here is that God knows our hearts. Haggai is speaking to all the people. He speaks to Zerubbabel, the governor, the civic leader. He speaks to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the, the, the spiritual leader. He speaks to all the people. So he's saying this is for everybody. And this message is for everyone here this morning. And Haggai asks three rhetorical questions. These, these questions are not necessarily meant to be answered, the answers are implied. And these three questions are this. You see them in verse 3. Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? Which there are some people that were present that saw the temple in Solomon's day. Uh, The second question is, how do you see it now? And the third question, in comparison with it. And here's where I want you to hone in. Haggai says, is it not in your eyes as nothing? Aren't you so glad that our eyes don't see things the way God sees them? They were looking at this temple and saying, it's not like what it was. And in their eyes, it was as nothing. But that's not what God said about it. So just by way of application, stop here for a second and say, it is easy as Christians to compare our allotment with something else. And very rarely is it ever helpful to compare. To compare with another Christian, for a church to compare themselves with another church, For you to compare your situation in this particular time in your life with another. 
it's very, very rare that comparison can be helpful. And we even see Jesus addressing this with Peter. When he restores Peter, he says, Peter, do you love me? He asked him three times, because Peter had denied Jesus three times. And after Jesus rose again from the dead, he meets with Peter in a very caring way. And he says, Peter, do you love me? And he says, Lord, you know all things. And then Jesus says, feed my sheep, tend my lambs. He's not done with Peter. And then Jesus says, you know, there's, there's going to be a day where you will be ready to die for me. And in that moment, Peter turns to John, another disciple, and Jesus says, what or, um, Peter says, what about John? And Jesus says, what is that to you? If I were John, I'd be like, thanks, Pete. I appreciate that. Jesus says, don't compare with John. He says, you, Peter, follow me. So whatever difficulty you find yourself in, and I have no doubt there are people in this room that find themselves in a very difficult position, whether that's a season of life, whether that's you're living in the wake of sinful choices you've made in the past, just like Israel was, living in the wake of sinful decisions in the present. God is not done with you. Do not, do not lose heart at looking back at the past and saying, it's not like what it was. The second thing, the good news that discouraged hearts need to hear, God knows our hearts. Secondly, obedience and faith is not in vain. We see in verses 4 and 5 these commands, these calls of God on his people to obey him. Let's look at one, uh, each, each of them in turn. The first one is be strong. And this command is not unfamiliar in the Bible. You often see this command when a task of life, uh, bigger than life, is given by God. One place we see this is in Deuteronomy when Moses is talking to Joshua and he's about, Joshua is about ready to fill some very big shoes to undertake a very big task of leading the people of God into the promised land. And this is what Joshua hears. He, say, he hears, be strong. You shall bring the children of Israel into the land of which I swore to them. We hear it in the New Testament in Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 11. It, it's, it's a call for Christians to engage in spiritual battle. And, and, that, and that is this, be strong in the Lord, not in your own strength. This battle is bigger than you could imagine. You cannot handle it. So it says, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. So this command is found throughout scripture. It's found here, and that is rebuild this temple, this thing that seems insignificant in your eyes in comparison with the temple of Solomon 
we know there's a theme in the Bible that is woven throughout the pages that, that says that God is glorified to use the weak things of the world to shame the strong. People of faith need to not use their earthly eyes to evaluate weak things of this world. We, again, we need God's perspective that is so much bigger than ours, and his wisdom is so much better than the wisdom of this world in our own wisdom, so much stronger than us in our human, finite strength. The second command is to work. And we see that in verse 4 as well. It says, Be strong, all you people of the land, says the Lord, and work. That is, continue in your rebuilding of this temple. Now, why would they be tempted to stop again? Well, we can assume that it's the same temptations that they were fixed that they were tempted to, to go previous. That is, that there are external threats. Israel's enemies were threatening them, and um, they did not want, they wanted to oppose this rebuilding. It could be the temptation, again, to focus on uh, their own personal endeavors. The third command is, do not fear. Again, what did they have to fear? The same things that they could, uh, that would tempt them not to work would also tempt them not to fear. External threats, internal focus on personal affairs. Let me just stop right here and say there are the same temptations we face today to stop the work that God has called Christians, his church, to do. Our culture is becoming more and more hostile to Christianity. And it would be tempting to say, I can be safe and, and just live the Christian life in my own home, in my own sphere, and not take that into work with me, not take that next door to my neighbors, and not bring up the good news of the gospel that can set the captive free. There is risk in doing that, and it is tempting to just draw back and say, I'm not going to do this work. It's safer that way. Also, we could get the temptation of being so absorbed in this life, in our earthly goals, which aren't necessarily bad in and of themselves, but we forget to let the gospel bear on those spheres that we have been blessed to go in, and we can just be accomplished of just advancing the ladder, uh, accomplishing goals in life that we forget eternal things. Obey the gracious commands of the Lord. Do not give up. Do not lose heart. Do not fear. Now, why do I say in this point, obedience and faith is not in vain? Let's just take this example of the temple. We will examine this a little bit later, but let's just ask a couple of questions about this temple. Was it magnificent compared to Solomon's temple? No. Will there be 
a glorious demonstration of the inhabitants of the glory of God in this temple. Not as far as we know. We have record of in the tabernacle and God taking residence up in that. We have record of God taking up residence in Solomon's temple. We have no such record about this temple. Will this temple even make it to Jesus' day? No. The temple that existed in Jesus' day was built by Herod the Great. So we have to stop and ask as we're reading this and say, what's the point? Why is God calling them to do this? Why is God stirring them up to continue? Because if I were the people of Israel, I'd be like, man, I really want to give my life towards something that's not going to last. And here, I think... We need to come back to the theme of the Bible that is God gets glory when his people live by faith. Again, that perspective that I just laid out for you is our human way of thinking about things. God's perspective is much bigger. And so we, by faith, have to trust that God has a plan for what he's calling us to do right now, right today, and say, God, I don't understand how this works out, but I will obey you because you call me to. So another point of application. Let's get to specific. Christian, mom, your faithful care of your children, even though it's looked at best, as secondary in today's world, or at worst, as an inconvenience, your work in faith in Jesus Christ is eternal. Christian brother and sister in Christ, who you have been praying fervently for something for weeks, months, Years. Do not lose heart at taking whatever you're praying about to the Lord. It's not a waste. I cannot promise exactly what you're praying for will come about exactly the way you're praying for, but I can promise that God hears, He cares, and it is for your good. And it is for his glory. And when we get to eternity, we will understand a little bit better that what God was bringing about. And again, that takes faith. That takes a bigger perspective than what you can come to grasp with in this moment. One more uh, application. Christian worker here um, in child, teens, nursery, music. You serve with your whole heart. That's wonderful. Sometimes it's easy to lose heart and look at a ministry that you're pouring yourself into and say, I don't see the fruit I would like to see. It is not in vain. Listen to this promise in 1 Corinthians 15. We started the service by reading a passage from 1 Corinthians 15. This is how the chapter ends, and it's not a coincidence. 
Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Your work in God's strength that he has called you to is not a waste. It is not in vain. The third thing that discouraged hearts need to hear to gain God's perspective is that God graciously provides his people with what they need to obey. Aren't you so glad that commands in the Bible are oftentimes either preceded or followed afterwards with his provision to obey them? And we see that here. First, his provision of his presence. He says in verse 4, I am with you. And this is connected with the commands of be strong and work. And you can, you can kind of hear what the people of Israel could be preaching to themselves in this moment. We are not left to ourselves to accomplish this. For God is with us. He is the one calling us to do this. He has not abandoned us. Let's work in his strength. He is with us. And this provision should sound very familiar to Christians. One of the last things we have recorded before Jesus ascends to be with his father after his earthly mission is done, he gives this provision. He says, go and make disciples of all nations and baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to do all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you even until the end of the age. The second provision is his faithfulness. In verse 5, he says, according to the word that I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt. This is what we've been reflecting on so far in 2021. Let us reflect on it some more. God's faithfulness. And this is connected to the command, do not fear. You do not have to fear because God is faithful. And again, you can hear the people preaching to themselves as they're taking up this task. God set our forefathers free from slavery. He made a covenant with us. He set us apart. And after more than 1,000 years of our rebellion, time and time and time and time again, he has disciplined us as he promised. He will still keep his word. What a faithful God what do we have to fear? And we have a promise that Christians have that Christ will build his church. And this is a wonderful promise that as we are invited to participate in God's redemption, to go and make disciples, we know that that task that is, will be undertaken will happen it will. 
What a wonderful thing to be a part of. Even in the middle of discouragement, even in the middle of setbacks, Jesus will build his church. He is faithful. The third provision is his spirit. In verse 5, we say, he says, so my spirit remains among you. What a wonderful thing. As in the book of Nehemiah, we have a rehearsing of Israel's history. And in that little section of uh, rehearsing of history, in the wilderness wanderings, we get a glimpse that the Holy Spirit was there teaching them and instructing them as God is providing for them water and manna. The Holy Spirit is there. And it's so wonderful, it says that the Holy Spirit remains among them. But again, how much more precious is the promise of God now that Christ has died, risen, and ascended. Not only is the Holy Spirit among us, but he is in us. That is why Jesus says, before he goes to heaven and acts, he says, wait for the promise of the Father, because we could not do this on our own. The Holy Spirit comes to equip us to be faithful with the commission of Jesus. So we have his presence, we have his faithfulness, we have his spirit, and lastly, we have his promises. And I love sections of the Bible where it's this rapid fire of I will, I will, I will, I will. And that's what we have here. And you're like, go God! You do it! So we have four promises in this chapter that gives perspective for the Israelites to to do this work. And I believe those promises will give us perspective in our present task as Christians today. The first promise is, I will shake heaven and earth, the sea, and dry ground, in verse 6. And this is referring to the turmoil on creation when judgment comes in the last days. In Romans, we get this picture that creation is groaning for its redemption. And this is the culmination of it. Joel picks this up. The prophet Joel, in chapter 3, uses the same language. For, I the, uh, for the day of the Lord is near. The sun and the moon will grow dark, and the stars will diminish their brightness. The Lord also will roar from Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem. The heavens and earth will shake. But here's the promise for the people of God. That sounds like a horrible thing to live through, but it is good news for those who trust in the Lord. It says, but the Lord will be a shelter for his people and the strength of the children of Israel. So you got creation being shaken. The second promise is, I will shake all nations, and they shall come to the desire of all nations. That is the overturn of all human authority to Jesus, the rightful ruler of all universe. In Psalm 2, I would encourage you to write this down and look at this. It's a wonderful uh, messianic psalm. Of It begins with, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? And then a little later it says, the Lord sits in heaven and laughs. His enemies have no chance. But there's this invitation for all those who oppose God 
which is all of us in our natural state, is to kiss the Son, submit allegiance to Him. Now, I do want to spend some time with this because the translation I use, I'm using the New King James Version, it, it, it translates this phrase, the desire of all the nations, and they shall come to the desire of all the nations. That is the stuff that the nations want. Well, what is that? And in my translation, uh, it capitalizes the desire of all the nations and attributes that to God himself. Um, so you have the idea that the nations are coming to what they desire most, namely God. Uh, Martin Luther, a great reformer, he espoused this interpretation. He's very Christological in the things that he interpreted. Um, the familiar Christmas carol that uh, you might know, um, called Angels from the Realms of Glory, the third verse says, Sages, leave your contemplations, brighter visions gleam afar. Seek the great desire of nations, ye have seen his natal star. That's the interpretation that that Christmas carol uses. Now, it is true that ultimately what all peoples long for is Jesus himself. In our sinful state, we have turned away and tried to fill that void with different things. But we have to ask ourselves, is that what this text means? And I would suggest that that is not what it means, even though that is true. Uh, the ESV renders this, so that the treasures of all the nations shall come in. So the things that the, the nations want, which would be treasures, uh, and the very next verse says, the silver is mine and the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. So I think that's one reason why it's good to take that, that uh, translation in, of this. Uh, so John Kelvin espoused this interpretation uh, it fits the pattern that we see in the Bible. So just think about the other places that God has taken resonance. So the tabernacle. What just happened prior to the building of the tabernacle? Well, well God set his people from, uh, free from Egypt, and Egyptians gave them lots of treasures and wealth. And no doubt that is what they used to build the temple. Or not the temple, the, um, the tabernacle. Thank you for going with me on this, the tabernacle. But then you fast forward to Solomon's day. He's building this glorious temple. And where does he turn? He turns to a king from another nation and says, hey, can we use your, your wood, your trees? And he says, not only will I give you that, I'll give you workers. So it fits kind of the theme of God arousing other nations to supply what the Israelites need to worship God, things that they would treasure so here's, here's the idea. Ultimately, everything is God's. And one day, everything that we value will be turned over to the Lord. Revelation 5, 12 says, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power, riches, and wisdom, and strength, and honor, and glory, and blessing. So the idea that would encourage their hearts is saying, God is promising that he will provide for their needs through the nations around them. The next promise, he says, is I will fill this temple with glory. And now we're going to get to the, the apparent problem that I mentioned earlier. So there's no record of God fulfilling this in Scripture. And the context seems to point to something not only is future in 
Haggai's day, but is future in our day as well. Truck with me for a second. So you, you see this, the, the word this. In verse 3, it says, Who is left among you who saw this temple? Referring to the present in its former glory. So the way the Israelites thought about their temple was this continuous string of different manifestations of it. You got it in the tabernacle. You have it in Solomon's day. You have it in Haggai's day. This temple did not make it to Jesus' day. You have Herod's temple. Is there one to be coming? And I believe there is. Ezekiel spends nine chapters, nine chapters, describing a future temple. And I believe that that would take place in what uh, Revelation describes as the millennial reign of Jesus. However, as much as we could spend our time focusing on that, that is not ultimate. Because Revelation paints a, another picture in Revelation 21, 22, this is John who has the privilege to look through the corridors of time and see what is to come. And he sees the, the city prepared as a bride coming out of heaven to meet the new heavens and new earth. And he's describing this the city, and he says, but I saw no temple in it, that is the new Jerusalem, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And there we get a wonderful thing. We get the full picture that the temple, as wonderful and as special as that was, it's not ultimate. It is but a picture of what is to come. The, the temple was an ongoing reminder that, one, the Lord desired to dwell with his people. The temple was also a reminder that in our fallen state, there would be a veil that would separate us from the presence of God. And it was a continual reminder that sin deserves punishment and death. And year after year on the Day of Atonement, one person got to go in with the blood of a lamb and make atonement for the sins of the people. Those were pictures. And here we have in Revelation the final lamb, the perfect lamb, God, man, taking on the sin of sinners, paying the price for sin, and the veil was torn in two. And then in Revelation, we get this picture and say, we don't need those reminders anymore because what we have longed for is now present. Jesus dwells with his people. And again, this is meant to give us perspective in our present tasks. The last promise is in verse 9. He says, and I will give peace. That is ultimate, eternal peace that comes from Jesus' reign and presence with his people. This is our hope that puts all other hopes, all other earthly hopes to shame. And this is a hope that only Jesus himself can offer. 
So as we bring this to our landing here, I want to just look at a number of different ways that we can think about these precious promises about God's perspective and bring them to bear in our lives. First of all, if you don't know Jesus as Savior, what your heart longs for the most cannot be fulfilled by things in this life, cannot be fulfilled by a particular lifestyle, cannot be fulfilled by riches, cannot be fulfilled by popularity, cannot be fulfilled whatever you want to pursue in this life. It comes from Jesus alone, and God has done something wonderful and magnificent to bring you to God. The things you fill your life with, that is idolatry. That is seeking something that, from other things that only God can fulfill. It is rebellion against God, and God says, I have made a way for, to bridge a sinful, rebellious person like myself, like all of us, to have peace with God. And that, that is through the death of Christ, his shed blood on the cross, his resurrection, you can have peace with God. I would pray that if you, if that makes any sense to you and you feel the spirit of God moving it, that's him calling you. Repent, believe in Jesus. The second thing is, for Christians, are you discouraged with something in the present moment that seems in your eyes as nothing? Is there a work that you are fearful of? Is there a work that you have abandoned, like the Israelites, in pursuing just earthly, temporary things? Have you been blinded by the facade at this is all there is? May the Spirit open your eyes to see something bigger and bring the gospel to bear on your life and wherever God has put you. Are you struggling in the midst of consequences of sin, like the Israelites? And, And they're wondering, why? Why do this? Is it worth pursuing? Is it worth obeying God? And the Bible resounds with, yes. Your labor is not in vain. He has given you provisions, and it will be a glorious end. Let me finish by talking as a congregation, okay? It is easy as a church to grow discouraged It is tempting sometimes to look at the culture and the changing elements of it and to step back and say, we're okay with just being safe. Just meeting and just amongst ourselves, this is safe. But there is a world lost, lost without hope. Let me be clear, people are not our enemies. Even though they espouse things that are hostile to Christianity, they are not our enemies. We engage in a warfare that they're not our enemies. I love the verse in the the hymn that we're going to sing in just a moment, O Church Arise. It's the second verse. It says, our call to war is to love the captive soul. But to rage 
against the captor. And with the sword, that's the word of God, let us not shy away from teaching whatever the word of God teaches or proclaiming whatever the word of God proclaims. We don't have to beat people over the head with it, but it is the sword that makes the wounded whole. We can fight with faith and valor. When faced with trials on every side, we know the outcome is secure, and Christ will have the prize for which he died, the inheritance of nations. What wonderful perspective. What wonderful news. Let's pray.